following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. event of the ascension of Jesus Christ. And that is the topic we're going to look at today as we've begun to study the book of Acts. You may know that the primary telling of the ascension is in Acts chapter 1, and you could put your finger there, but I'm going to read first from Luke 24, where Luke ends his gospel with a word about the ascension, which is more or less a, a preview, although it does tell of it. It, it not quite as full a description as if to say this is coming and I'm going to tell you more about it. So I read the very last verses of Luke 24 and then Acts 1. First we read of Jesus, then he led them out, that's the disciples, as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands he blessed them. While he blessed them he parted from them and was carried up into heaven and they worshiped him. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. That's a little bit more of a broad description. And we come to Acts 1, and Luke is now taking this up more chronologically, what happened as Christ had promised the Holy Spirit and Pentecost was about to come in chapter 2. We have this event, and I'm going to back up a little bit and start in 6. And read through verse 11 of Acts 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's holy word. I have a minister friend named George, who's a bit older than me and now retired already. And uh, he confessed to me once, and, and I could see this fit his personality, that as a younger man, he liked to joke about things. And he said, you know, I had to learn wisdom because I would often joke about things that not everybody found humorous. And he told me about one instance uh, in a very classical way where this humorizing backfired on him. I believe it was in the late 1970s that George was a candidate for a new church. And it was a 
interesting, active church, and he desired to be considered for this position, and he was called and had the interview with the search committee at the church, and the interview seemed to be going very, very well. He felt, he said to me many years afterwards, he said, I, they were talking about when you come, and it, was, it seemed like it was a foregone conclusion that a job offer was going to be made to me. But then the members of the committee took him on a tour of the church facilities, and they were walking about, having different classrooms and facilities explained, and of course they came to the sanctuary. I've not been to this particular church, but I know where it is, and I've seen a picture of its sanctuary. It has behind the pulpit a tall, rather narrow, rectangular window of stained glass that's very modernistic. The scene is Jesus ascending to heaven with his arms out, as you might often see in these kind of scenes. But it was, as I say, a a modern rendition, kind of abstract, almost rather garish. If if any of you knew the artist Mark Chagall and you thought of his work, that's kind of what it is, not representational art at all. And so they came in, and and the, the person who was leading the tour sort of proudly pointed up to the pulpit and said, what do you think of our window? Well, this is where my friend did not do so well. He remembered and probably will remember all his days what he said. He said, Jesus looks a bit like Rocket Man rising upward with a jet pack. I have a good friend named Chris Labs here who would have been likely to say something like that too, but not a diplomatic comment at all. And he said, immediately, the temperature with that committee plummeted southward. George did not get that call to be pastor of that church. And in fact, he found out later that the chairman of the search committee and his wife had donated that particular stained glass window. And this makes it even worse. It was in memory of their son who was killed in Vietnam. Wow foot in mouth, big time. Well, you've probably seen representational art of Christ in the ascension in stained glass windows yourself at some time. It's probably one of the more popular topics actually for stained glass renditions or maybe you've seen a painting of it or something. But you know, unless you see those artistic renderings, one of the few times that consistently Christians pay a nod at all to the doctrine of the ascension is every week when we use the Apostles' Creed because it may have just flowed from your brain out your tongue without you thinking this morning, but you acknowledged it. You said Jesus ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now, it's interesting that the ascension of Christ is a doctrine that definitely takes a back seat to many other things. And one reason is because the two very short paragraphs that I read at the end of Luke 24 and in Acts 1 are the only historic descriptions of the event, and they're not very long on words or description, are they? We might wonder, well, Matthew and John, they were among these disciples. Why didn't they add something about this at the end of their Gospels? But they did not, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit knew. And you might say, gee, it's, it's so low-key, it's so almost silent, it's almost as if the New Testament doesn't think this is important. Well, I'm going to try to 
counteract that thought in a few minutes. But for a moment, to begin, we say that Christ the Lord transitioned visibly and physically from our planet, from this time and space existence in which we talk to one another, see one another, shake one another's hand, to the spiritual dwelling of God that is a different plane of existence, but certainly still within God's created reality. Jesus departed after 30 years of walking this earth, and disciples were told in so many words, don't expect him to just come in the room when you're there or appear on the beach and say, have breakfast, as he did in those 40 days between the resurrection and this event. But what he did say was to instruct them that the Holy Spirit would come, and as we're going to learn more about the Holy Spirit, I keep saying this, there's a real sense in which the Holy Spirit is the continued presence of Jesus Christ, for he is even called the Spirit of Jesus. Now, the ascension, you could say, reversed the virgin birth. It reversed Christmas. What was, what, what's Christmas if not the eternal Son become flesh? Now we have the Son who was flesh returning to his eternal glory. You would think these would be bookend events of equal importance. And yet, in the emphasis of the church, in the time spent talking about it or that time Christians spend thinking about it, I would say the ascension doesn't occupy 5% of the time that Christmas and the incarnation occupy in our thinking. I first today want to emphasize why the ascension can be understood as a biblical fact. Secondly, I'm going to talk about what the event means for Jesus himself. And thirdly, what it ought to mean to each of us as a disciple. So first of all, we consider the ascension as a biblical fact. Now, it is both a historic event and a miracle, and those are not contradictions. We believe in other things that were historic events, the virgin birth, the resurrection, that were entirely supernatural in terms of what was happening, the the motivating power behind them, and yet they happened, and they produced something real in this world. Some people would would say, well, maybe the the ascension was a bit like the transfiguration, that earlier time when disciples, certain privileged disciples, saw Jesus appearing with Moses and Elijah, and he was glorified, and it says that even his his face shined like the sun, and his clothes were were brilliant. It's not like that, though, in the the sort of low-key nature of the ascension. There's nothing here that says the ascension was dazzling or that Jesus was, was bright in his appearance. In fact, it, it, it's really, it's so matter of fact in verse 9 of Acts 1, just saying, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of sight. And it's just as matter of fact as anything can be. I want you to notice that maybe contradicting some of the art you've seen, it doesn't say, we think in our minds, and, and you know, this kind of thought probably makes it harder for us to believe in it. That Jesus, you know, the the man's joke was not a great joke, but rocket man sort of shooting up vertically. We think of Jesus rising for thousands of feet until he was out of sight or something. Actually, it doesn't say that. It does say he was lifted from the ground, lifted up. But then it says a cloud took him out of their sight. The cloud, it seems, immediately obscured the rest of the event. 
And of course, a cloud has a lot of symbolism in the Bible. We go all the way back to the Shekinah glory that filled the tabernacle and the temple. There are clouds lots of times when God's glory, God's grandeur is, is being symbolized here. Now, there is a mystery, and the disciples were mystified. They were staring at it. Is he going to come back? Where'd he go? What ha- what's happening here? You can imagine. And yet the emphasis is that this was a real event. If you would just maybe look at your Bible for a moment, I want you to see five times there, just in these couple of verses, uh, that they were, one, looking on, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing, uh, middle of verse 11, why are you looking into heaven? And then at the end, you saw him go. Now that's five times that verbs relating to their sight or vision or beholding something are used here. It's very concrete. They saw this. It wasn't a, a hallucination. They didn't just all dream it. They saw it happen. It was a real event, even though supernatural in nature. Jesus has gone from the physical realm of walking about as a man on this earth, talking to us as in the ways that, you know, the ordinary ways that it says he ate a piece of fish or something after the resurrection. He's not doing that now. But we're going to see he's not actually completely gone before we finish. Now, Some people are bothered by the fact that we only have this little bit of a description. They say you would think an event that important would would have a lot more of the Bible devoted to it. Well, even though those are the only descriptions of it happening, there are many scriptures that actually echo it. It, for example, is a fulfillment of one of the greatest predictive prophecies in all the Bible, Psalm 110 at which we read, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. That was fulfilled not by David, but by Jesus Christ when he sat at the right hand of the Father. Right in a a page across from where we are, Acts 2.33, Peter begins preaching about Jesus to people who don't quite know what to think about him. And one of the things he says is that he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. Later on, that same Peter, much later in his life, 1 Peter 3.22 says, he has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Paul says it too, Ephesians 1.20. He speaks of Jesus seated at the right hand of God. Ephesians 4.9. Here's an important verse. He says, he who descended, that is, who, who came from heaven in the first place, he who descended to earth... Ephesians 4, 9, is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the universe. 1 Timothy three sixteen, Paul says Jesus was, quote, taken up in glory. Hebrews 1, 3, the unknown author of that book says, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I could go on, but that's a good sampling of some of the many places where Certainly, what happened is affirmed in the rest of the Scripture. We have a united testimony that the ascension of Jesus is a biblical and important fact. Now, secondly, you need to know that the ascension is a cornerstone in our doctrine of Christology. 
I won't apologize for throwing a big word at you once in a while. You should know what Christology is, the knowledge of Christ. Our doctrine about Christ himself is called Christology. And uh, let's think for just a minute. This is a big subject. I won't begin to cover all of it, but just suggest three ways, three sub-points in which we can tell you what the ascension signified for Christ himself. Number one, it marked the return of Jesus to his eternal preexistent glory. Now, I'm sure if you're a devoted watcher of uh, local news or even national news in the the more recent years that the wars have been going on in Iraq and, and Afghanistan, the Pennsylvania National Guard has sent troops there, it's a pretty regular thing that you're going to see on the news a scene of a lot of people gathered with balloons and signs in happy anticipation and a bus pulling in, bringing the soldiers related to them back from war. You can picture the scene. Maybe you've even been in this scene yourself. And, uh, you know, the bus unloads, the troops come off, and here are the wives and husbands and moms and dads and children, some of them children born that the soldiers never seen and so on. And what amazing, happy, unbridled, joyful reunions happen as everyone's kissing and hugging and welcoming those soldiers home. Well, I want to say to you, that is a very tame, tame, pale shadow of a bliss that you and I cannot even imagine as God the Father welcomed his son home from the warfare of the cross. Jesus had prayed in John 17, 5, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. Listen, the ascension is the gateway for that to happen. And and I won't say try to imagine it because we can't imagine it. We cannot imagine how father and son had, had had a pact before all time, that the son would do this amazing thing as an army of one doing battle with sin and death itself. Colossians says he disarmed the powers and authorities of sin and death. He won a cosmic victory, not just an earthly victory. And he came back to his father. This isn't the prodigal son coming home. Someone in one commentary I had said he came home like the prodigal son received... Well, there's a big difference. Jesus wasn't a prodigal. Jesus was the victor who had never swayed from obeying the Father and carrying out his will, and he comes home to receive glory. You know, thinking of of different kinds of glory, uh, uh, probably my best laugh during the Olympics the last uh, few weeks ago were and I don't want to make fun of this man because I, as an athlete, I certainly respect him. Usain Bolt is now declared the fastest man in the world. Have you seen him? He's, he's unbelievable. If, if I was in the 100-yard dash against Usain Bolt, I would be hitting the 10-foot mark when he crossed the finish line for 100 yards. I, I swear, that's how fast he is. Amazing. Great athlete. But... You may have picked up Usain Bolt saying to reporters this quote, which astounded me and made me laugh. He said, I came here to become a legend in my own time. 
And now I am. And I thought, wow. It's a good thing they're not giving out the humility award. (laughs) Great man, great athlete. Not very humble. He had to declare himself a legend in his time. Let me tell you, Jesus Christ didn't declare himself anything. The Father declared the greatness of the Son. And that's spoken to in Philippians chapter 2, that wonderful passage that talks about the, the Son going as the highest one to the lowest depth, becoming a servant of all to the point of death on a cross. And then it says, God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, every tongue would confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's not a man trying to tell everybody how great he is. That's God saying, here's the one above all others. The epic return of the Son to his glory is is there unfolding in the ascension. But just a very similar thing, a secondary point, sub-point is to say not only did he get glory... But now he is installed as the reigning king, the monarch of the universe. You know, here we are in this never-ending presidential campaign. Pretty soon presidential campaigns are going to take four years, I'm pretty sure. It seems like it's been going on for four years. Um, And we're trying to see, you know, two parties. We've had one convention. We've got another one coming. Each party wants to have its man invested as president on January 2013 on the steps of the U.S. Capitol. And after all, it's really important because this is probably the most powerful office that anybody can attain on planet Earth, if you really want to know the truth. Really commanding just about the most power, the biggest economy, and so on. You know all that. And yet, think about it, all the work and effort and everything that goes on to get somebody in a four-year stint, even in the highest, most powerful office on the earth, how does that mere four years in that compare to the investiture of the supreme commander of the universe? That's Jesus. Colossians says he's the one in whom all things hold together. My goodness, he's the molecular bonds that hold the atoms of that piano together so it doesn't crash on the floor. He holds all things together. Is there any office that begins to compare with the office that he received as the ascended Lord? J.I. Packer has a sentence, I think he was probably trying to get the attention of business-oriented people when he described this and he said this, I quote him, the son of the company founder was recalled from his assignment in a remote sales office back to headquarters to assume the permanent role of chief executive officer. That's what was happening with Jesus in the ascension. He now was given the place of rule. When when the end of time and the judgment of this earth comes, it's not the father who's going to judge us, it's Christ the son who now is the sovereign Lord. Psalm 2 actually predicted that a long time ago when the father in that psalm tells the son, I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. And I think Paul had that all in all supremacy of Christ in his mind. 
in the great tremendous doxology of Romans 11.36 when Paul said it so simply but so powerfully, for from him, through him, unto him be the glory of all things, to him be glory forever. He's the reigning Lord. And the ascension is when that begins. But then a third thing is here as the angels actually rebuke the disciples for standing there staring. And we have produced here a pledge of Christ's supernatural return. The message of angels was he'll return the same way. You see him taken by a cloud, read the accounts, various predictions of Christ's second coming. And it says he will come on the clouds in great glory, not seen by 11 men, seen by the world, seen by everyone at once. And so we have here even the goal of that next great supernatural, the last great supernatural event in which Christ will appear and bring history to an end. Well, those are just suggestions of the things that the ascension meant for Jesus himself. As I close, I want to tell you three things quickly that I think it should mean for us as believers in Christ. First, the ascension tells us that our mediator at the throne of God is the same son of the highest who came in flesh at Bethlehem, who wore our flesh and wears it still. You know, there are 19th century hymns. They're sort of sometimes sentimental, and they'll talk about, oh, if I could touch the the wounds in his hand, and so on. You know what? Those hymns have good theology. I believe when we see Christ in heaven, we will see those wounds. Because Jesus came from heaven to become a man, and the man Jesus returned to heaven to assume his place as a son without ceasing to be a man. Jesus isn't a ghost, He dwells in a body today, and he's at the throne of his father as our go-between with all compassion of what it means to be human in his heart and in his mind to understand how to pray for us, to intercede for us, to lead and guide us. He's able to help us, says Hebrews 2.18. He became our high priest, able, says Hebrews 7.5, to save Unto the uttermost place, those who draw near to God through him, because he always lives, to make intercession for them. He prays for us. And let me tell you, Christian, in your weakest, most difficult hour, when you say, it doesn't seem to me like anybody's on my side, I'm weak, I just can't go forward, I don't know what to do, you might want to think of Romans 8.34 that issues that strong challenge and says, who is it that will condemn me? Listen, Paul had a lot of people who wanted to condemn him. But he defiantly said, who is there to condemn me? For Christ Jesus, who died and was raised to life, is at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for me, Paul said. Listen, if you know that's true, you can walk through fire. You can face a coliseum full of lions. You can get fired and be without an income. Who is there to condemn me? Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God interceding for me. Christians can live 
lives of victory and trust and hope with that kind of thing behind them. But in addition to knowing our mediator, another point for us to know is that this ascended Lord seeks for us to be witnesses, not stargazers. Didn't he say that? Don't stand there gazing at the sky. You've got a job to do in so many words. Go and be my witnesses, and I'm going to give you the power. I'll be the power in you and through you. A lost world needs to know who I am, what I did, and what great hope there is to find life in me. He didn't call us to be stargazers. He called us to be witnesses. And finally, I say this today. The ascension declares to us that Jesus may have left us temporarily, but he did so in order to be with us permanently. I was really talking about this last week, but I want to say it again. Christ, we're going to find, is present in and through his Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit, or they're not a Christian in the first place. And so now Jesus can be everywhere with all his people. He's not contained locally. His residence is not Jerusalem. It's not Judea. It's the uttermost parts of the world, wherever his people are. This one who is a glorified man in God's universe isn't concerned anymore about is he up or is he down or is he far away or is he near. He's with us. That's what he said. I'll be with you to the end of the age. Ephesians one twenty three, I think, declares that in light of this subject, saying that the church is Christ's body. It is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's what an ascended Christ does. He fills everything in every way. He's not localized anymore. Augustine had a wonderful gift with words so many centuries ago. Many short prayers that he left us. I love this one. Augustine prayed, Lord, you ascended from before our eyes and we turned back grieving only to find you in our hearts. You ascended from before our eyes and we turned back grieving only to find you in our hearts. The ascended Christ is the Christ who is with us, with us to the end of the age. And we can be confident, with us he most certainly is. Thanks be to God. Father, there's so many mystifying things that you did by your power. We want to stake our claim to believe in this event of the ascension. And we want to believe in this Lord who reigns now and is our mediator. He said, all power is given unto me, and therefore he can command things. Thank you that this is the Christ who we worship. For those who are most discouraged today or sure there's no power available to go on, may they worship and trust the ascended Lord Jesus. We praise you for him. And we ask your presence with us in his name. Amen.